The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World Episode 26 The Battle of Clontarf Today's story takes us to the island of Ireland, which is the westernmost of the two large islands of the British Isles that lie just off the northwest coast of continental Europe. However, during the last glacial maximum approximately 20,000 years ago, Ireland was very much a part of the continental landmass of Europe due to the lower sea levels, meaning that more land was above the surface. There were periods during the warming of the Earth's climate that large ice sheets melting caused a significant rising in the sea levels in a short period of time and one of these meltwater pulses may have caused Ireland to have become separated from the rest of Europe over 10,000 years ago and a significant amount of time before Great Britain became separated itself. Radiocarbon dating of animal bones strongly suggest that humans were inhabiting Ireland around 10,000 years ago and it is likely that they were able to make it there without a sea crossing. These people may have lived in seasonal settlements, sheltered in thatched huts and living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle with no evidence of farming. The site at Mount Sandal in the modern country of Northern Ireland, demonstrates this early Irish way of life. It is likely that Ireland was separated from Europe by water when agriculture did reach the island. On the west coast of the Republic of Ireland, there exists evidence of agricultural field management that dates back around 6,000 years. The age and nature of this site at Cater Fields makes this site globally significant when tracking the historical developments of the earliest forms of agriculture. Some have suggested that the field system displays signs of the Celtic styles of farming, but this is highly contentious, along with the difference of opinions when Celtic language speakers actually migrated to Ireland. We certainly know that aspects of traditional Celtic culture were present in Ireland as long ago as 500 BCE, and this is thanks to the discovery of art. However, the exact nature of the migration remains hazy. The British Isles were certainly impressionable from European cultures, despite the water crossing. 
we see the emergence of Bronze Age and Iron Age developments from before 500 BCE, as well as megalithic tomb buildings such as the impressive Newgrange, which is a passage tomb thought to be older than the earliest known constructions at Stonehenge in the south of Great Britain. Cultural developments in Great Britain and in Ireland seem to be fairly closely linked. Celtic-speaking Ireland from the period of classical antiquity is referred to by historians as the emergence of Gaelic Ireland, with Gaelic languages representing the type of Celtic languages that proliferated in Ireland and appeared to migrate to Scotland also. Gaelic Ireland would have been inhabited by many different tribal entities and confederations during this period and Roman awareness of these peoples started to emerge and appear in records. Archaeologists have recognised a stagnant period in Irish history where not much in the way of human activity and progress have been detected during the period of the Roman occupation of a large percentage of Great Britain during the years of the Roman Empire and it has been speculated that the Romans may have simply raided Ireland and turned the Gaelic Irish into slaves. The population of the island would not have been particularly high, possibly as low as half a million individuals. So this could explain why Ireland did not progress for a few centuries in a period referred to as the Irish Dark Age. We know from previous episodes that it was during the 5th century that the son of a Romano-British clergyman travelled to Ireland and ultimately contributed significantly to the Christianisation of the Irish people and eventually becoming the patron saint of the Irish as St Patrick. However, there is a reference to an earlier mission when Pope Celestine I sent a man called Palladius to Ireland to become the first bishop of the Scotty people. So Ireland was certainly very much on the geographical radar of Rome, with Christianity having an early impact compared to many of the Germanic immigrants of Great Britain, who held on to their pagan traditions for a while after the 5th century. The Christian church in Ireland would evolve in its own way due to its geographical isolation. A highly influential monastic culture would emerge in Ireland and due to the Celtic connections of the pre-Germanic occupants of the British Isles we refer to this church as the Celtic Christian Church but due to the haziness of the exact historical relationship between Celtic culture and the British Isles we tend to call the Celtic culture of the British Isles Insular Celtic. Therefore, it would not be incorrect for us to refer to the Irish monastic tradition to be an insular Christian movement. With the revisit of St Patrick to the island came the establishment of the position of primate of all Ireland, the senior clergyman of the Irish Christian Church. Patrick would establish his supreme bishopric at Armagh, which is now a city in the United Kingdom country of Northern Ireland. South of the border in the modern Irish county of Meath, an abbey was founded at Clonard in the 6th century by a man called Finian. Finian would educate others at the abbey, and this included the men 
who would come to be known as the Twelve Apostles of Ireland. Notable among these twelve men were Columba, who travelled across the water to the modern Scottish island of Iona, where he founded his own abbey, a highly regarded centre of Christian pilgrimage to this very day, and the basis of the spread of the insular Celtic Christian church in the lands of Scotland, as well as being responsible for the establishment of the well-known monastery at Lindisfarne in the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria. Another of the apostles was called Brendan, whose brave voyage into the Atlantic Ocean in search of the Garden of Eden was documented a few centuries later. Both Columba and Brendan were venerated as Christian saints. In the late 6th and early 7th century, an Irish monk called Columbanus actually went to the European continent and established monasteries in the Frankish and Lombard kingdoms. In the 8th century, Scandinavians came to the British Isles, and the most famous of their earliest aggressions was at the insular Christian monastery on the island of Lindisfarne in 793. Historians have signalled this as the start of the Viking Age, although this is a bit of a lazy label, due to the fact that Vikings were raiding other lands long before Lindisfarne, and this wasn't the first time that Vikings had attacked British land in any case. Nonetheless, the Viking impact on all of the ethnicities of the British Isles would soon be felt. The island of Iona would very quickly suffer a similar treatment from Viking raiders keen to steal the riches of the abbey. The first Viking raid on Iona was in the year after Lindisfarne and then the year after that the Vikings raided Rathlin Island just off the coast of Northern Ireland. Those of you who have listened to the more recent episodes will be fully aware of the Vikings and the fact that they stepped up their activity around Great Britain throughout the 9th century and Ireland would be no different. It was during the 840s that we can feel confident that Vikings were overwintering in Ireland, which essentially means that they were establishing riverside camps in which they could moor or beach their ships and then defend their camp and raid accessible land settlements and buildings at will. The Vikings were able to raid, plunder and destroy the sacred monastery of St Patrick in Armagh. This would also be how the Norwegian Vikings were able to occupy the lands of the modern city of Dublin, which is the modern capital city of the Republic of Ireland. The Norwegians would face a fierce backlash from many Irish locals during their earliest years at Dublin. Their leader was killed and many abandoned the riverside settlement, preferring different territories elsewhere in Europe. Danish Vikings then came and expelled the remaining Norwegians, taking Dublin for themselves. Those Norwegian Vikings who had already successfully settled the outlying islands surrounding Great Britain, such as the Orkneys and the Hebrides, are referred to as the Norse Gales, and one of these Norse Gales, called Olaf the White, came back to Dublin with his brother Ivar, and took Dublin back from the Danes, establishing himself as the King of Dublin in 853. 
It is quite difficult to determine the exact nature of the political setup in Ireland at the time of the Viking invasions. It certainly doesn't appear to be a case of the Vikings against the Irish, due to the fact that Ireland had a sparsely scattered population whose clans coalesced into local kingdoms that often rivalled each other. There were also undoubtedly regular alterations to the political map and clans shifted alliances and powers emerged and disappeared over time. We know that Vikings created areas of settlement similar to the ones at Dublin in various locations around the island by the end of the 9th century. By the year 900, both Norwegian Vikings and Danish Vikings had become part of the political fabric of the British Isles. The Norwegians and the Danish had no loyalty to each other, looking after their own interests and battling each other where necessary. The indigenous kingdoms of the British Isles were much the same. The kingdoms of modern Scotland such as Strathclyde and Alpa were political rivals as were the kingdoms and clans of Ireland. This situation enabled the Vikings to befriend and create political marriages to forge fruitful alliances with the indigenous kingdoms in order to create their own power bases, such as those that emerged at Wexford, Waterford, Cork and Limerick. The integration of Vikings in Ireland was a slow process due to the fact that Vikings were often opposed by Irish kings and this could often lead in expulsion from the island until a new wave of Vikings came under a new leader. The most important centre of Viking culture was always at Dublin though, which prospered due to its location being central to many other kingdoms allowing the Vikings to pick and choose their locations to raid. The activity of the Vikings and the Irish and their political movements both with and against each other were continuous throughout the 10th century and too much for us to detail in this particular episode. Another political notion which appears to have emerged during the Viking Age of Irish history is the notion of there being a High King of Ireland. This appears to have been a position that was somewhat claimed by those who wanted to exercise superiority over their peers. But with the nature of Ireland at this stage in history, the reality of being the High King of Ireland was far from being a true king of the entire island. Whoever it was that created the position of High King of Ireland has gone to great lengths to prove its legitimacy and status by tracing its history all the way back to the second millennium BCE, long before the existence of the ancient Romans and Greeks. The lists of kings that date back this far have been considered to be legendary only by most modern historians, but as the lists near the contemporary age, the existence of the individuals listed gradually becomes more acceptable. There were kingdoms that existed in the northern half of Ireland whose leaders claimed descent from a legendary figure called Niall of the Nine Hostages and was therefore called the Enail dynasties. Particular Enail kings claimed the title of the High King of Ireland until the late 10th century when the position was opposed by a member of another Irish family. 
Brian Baru. The Irish Kingdom of Munster existed in the far south of the island during the Viking Age, and two considerable Viking settlements existed within it at Limerick and Cork. To the north of the settlement of Limerick and within Munster was a family clan called the Dalgushians, whose king in the middle of the 10th century was Kintig MacLorcan, and it would be he who would raise the stock of the Dalgushians in Munster. Kintig was married to the daughter of a king in the Irish kingdom of Connacht, which was to the Dalgushians north. Despite Kintig's Dalgashians existing within Munster territory, he would have ambitions of ruling Munster himself. Munster was often in battle with the e who claimed to be the High Kings of Ireland, so Kintig sought a political affiliation with the e to try to undermine the King of Munster. After Kintig's death, his sons would continue the ambition for power, firstly within the lands to the north of Limerick and further to that, the larger territories of Munster. Notable was Kintig's son, Mathmagan MacKintig, who led the Dalgashians to victory over the Limerick Vikings in the year 968, destroying their settlement at Limerick. Mathmagan was accompanied during this battle by his younger brother, another son of Kintig MacLorcan, and his name was Brian Baruma MacKintig, better known to history as Brian Baru. The able men of Limerick were either slaughtered or sold to slavery, which was ironically one of the more popular ways for Viking societies to gain wealth by selling their own prisoners of war into slavery. Their leader, Ivar of Limerick fled to Great Britain. From here, Mathmagan would go on to challenge the King of Munster, Moyle Maud MacBrien, and in 917, Mathmagan successfully overthrew Moyle Maud and became the new King of Munster, traditionally called the King of Cashel, as the seat of power was at the Rock of Cashel. However, in his ascent to power, Mathmagan had quickly amassed a lot of bitter enemies and they were all set for revenge against the Dalgashians, Mathmagan and Brian Baru. It may have been in around 976 that Mathmagan was captured by a rival who handed him over to the former king of Munster, Moilmord MacBrien, and Mathmagan would not be allowed to survive. This propelled Brian Baru into very quickly having to fill his brother's shoes and take action to protect his legacy as the Dalgashian king of Munster. Moyle Maud had regained control of Cashel, and what is more, Ivar of Limerick had returned and set up base on Scattery Island in the mouth of the Shannon River, with a view to taking back control of the settlement at Limerick. The big issue for Brian was that Ivar was essentially the descendant of Vikings, and this brought with it all of the naval expertise that should make it easy to take Limerick back from the Dalgushians. But by this time, Viking culture and expertise had been in Ireland long enough for all of that knowledge and expertise to have become common knowledge among the strongest clans of Ireland, and Brian was able to defeat Ivar's Limerick Vikings 
in a naval battle and kill Ivar in the process, beating the Vikings at their own game. Brian had no time to lose in terms of defending the Dalgatians against the wrath of Moyle Maud, and so the two forces met at the Battle of Belach Lechta in 978, where Brian would successfully defeat and kill Moyle Maud, effectively taking back the Kingdom of Munster for the Dalgatians. Brian had very quickly defeated and eliminated two powerful rivals in an incredible start to his reign. Even with those incredible victories, Brian's realm was not wholly secure. Other rivals existed, including claimants to supremacy in Munster and other Viking strongholds. A political enemy of the Dalgatians, who had shown support for both Moilmord MacBrian and Ivar of Limerick, was a man called Donuban MacCahal. Donuban represented the highly important Munster Kingdom of E. Figenti. It is not clear from the various annals exactly what happened, but we can feel somewhat confident that Brian had strong knowledge of Donuban through previous encounters with his enemies. It may have been that Donuban had struck up a close affiliation with the son of the slain Limerick Viking leader, Ivar. His name was Harold Ivarsson, and he also had ambitions of reclaiming Limerick. It may have been that Brian chose to take the battle to his enemies as opposed to waiting to be attacked, and whether or not Donuban was killed in battle at the Battle of Kahakuan, it appears that Harold Everson was, and Brian's victory here ensured that these two threats, the E. Figenti and the Limerick Vikings, were eliminated for good. Limerick was claimed as the new capital settlement of the Dalgutians, and Brian then turned his attention on quickly subjugating the other Viking settlements within Munster. Brian's ambition stretched further than the Irish Kingdom of Munster, though. His next targets would be his neighbours on the island, namely the kingdoms of Leinster, Meath, Connacht and Dublin. Brian would campaign against his neighbours, so he clearly believed that the best way to defend his position was to take the fight to the enemy. Brian would attempt to prevent rebellion within his own kingdom by including populations, so the Viking residents in Munster were invited to be a part of Brian's army and undoubtedly taken care of accordingly. The Viking assistance enabled Brian to terrorise the lands of the Upper Shannon River, including the Kingdom of Meath, which was being ruled by the High King of Ireland, Moyle Shechnal MacDomnall, who was a descendant of the Enail clan. Moyle Shechnal MacDomnall had had many differences with the Norse rulers in Dublin, and in the closing years of the 10th century, both Moyle Shechnal and Brian Baru realised that if they made a truce and recognised each other as rulers of the north and south of Ireland respectively, that they could help each other to placate their collective enemies, such as the Norse of Dublin and the rulers of the kingdoms of Connacht and Leinster. 
both Dublin and Leinster were in the midst of rebelling, Dublin against the High King Moyle Shecknell and Leinster against Brian Boru, who was exercising over lordship over them. The result was the Battle of Glenmama in the year 999, where Moyle Shecknell and Brian Boru defeated their enemies. The alliance between Moyle Shecknell and Brian Boru was a means to an end and it would not be long before Brian would exercise his power for greater glory when he turned on Moyle Shecknell, who did not receive the support of his e-nail cousins in the north of Ireland and had to concede his title of High King of Ireland to Brian. Brian had achieved the unthinkable and become the first High King of Ireland that did not claim descent from the e-nails. Prelude to the Battle We would not normally present battle episodes in this nature, but such was the nature of Ireland that its complexity makes it impossible to analyse all of the different parties involved in one single episode. Hopefully now we have a basic understanding of this complexity and why Ireland had become such a diverse mixture of dynasties and ethnicities and why they were all looking over their shoulders at one another. Brian Baru had simply mastered the art of coupling good governance with assertive militancy that had made good leaders great throughout history. Despite being the High King of Ireland, Brian Baru did not rule over all of the kingdoms of Ireland directly. Instead, the various kings recognised Brian as their overlord and acted as tributary kings. Brian would find himself required to deal with various rebellions, but essentially he maintained good order until a more serious rebellion took place in 1013 involving Leinster and Dublin who had never been wholly comfortable bowing down to anyone. The King of Leinster was Moyle Murda Mac Murda, who was the same king who was also the King of Leinster when they rebelled in 999, leading to the Battle of Glenmama. The Norse Gael King of Dublin was a man called Sigtrick Silkbeard, who was also the King of Dublin during the very same rebellion. Sigtrick and Brian had married into each other's family since the Battle of Glenmama, with Brian being married to Sigtrick's mother, Gormfla. When Brian divorced Gormfla, this soured the relationship between Munster and Dublin. As a result, Sigtrick was keen to join the Leinster Rebellion against Brian Baru, and he would contact some supportive allies to assist him. One of whom was a man called Sigurd the Stout, who was the Norse Gael Earl of Orkney. Another was a man called Brother, who may have been a military leader based in the Isle of Man, likely of Danish origin. Both Sigurd the Stout and Brother of Man pledged their allegiance to Sigtrick Silkbeard in Dublin. Brother's brother, Ospak, felt that it was a bad idea to support the Irish rebellion and defected to Brian Baru's side when he learned that Brother planned to slay Ospak's men for not pledging 
their own allegiance. Brian was actually quite elderly by this time and so he relied on his own son, Murhad MacBrien, to actively lead his army. So the two opposing forces would meet at Clontarf, north of Dublin, on Good Friday in the year 1014. The Battle of Clontarf We have to read between the lines a little with the sources available to us regarding the Battle of Clontarf, but we can make a number of suppositions and suggestions based on what we do have. Considerable embellishment of the story is not out of the question, particularly as we have to refer to Norse sagas for information too. With Brian's aim to actively suppress the rebellion, his son Murhad would advance on the enemy with his men bravely and would engage the men led by the Earl of Orkney Sigurd the Stout. Murhad fought bravely with accounts of him slaying a hundred men with one of them actually being Sigurd the Stout himself. However, Murhad found himself unable to escape the battlefield and he was slain himself. So the Earl of Orkney and Brian Baru's son perished in the battle during the early exchanges. As the fighting continued throughout the day, the forces of Brian Baru maintained the upper hand. The Dublin Vikings were being eliminated in numbers, and it is suggested that only a small number of them survived until the later part of the day. We know that Brian Baru's son was lost in the battle, but it also appears that Murhat's teenage son was in the battle too that day. Tarlach, Brian Baru's grandson, also died on the battlefield. We know that a nephew of Brian Baru was also on the battlefield and his name was Conan MacDonquan, King of Desmond. It is told that Conan actually killed the king of Leinster, Moil Morha Mac Murha, on the battlefield before being slain himself. By all accounts, it seems that this was a bloody and intense battle in which both sides suffered heavy losses. Towards the end of the day, with the king of Leinster now killed and Dublin Vikings becoming low in numbers, the Vikings decided that it was the right time to flee the battlefield and so their only means to escape was back to their longships. However, the tide had risen and many of the ships had prematurely fled the scene, leaving some of the Dublin Vikings to face the consequences of being slain on the battlefield or drowned in the sea. Some of the Viking warriors were still armed and ready to continue when their comrade, brother of man, took an opportunity to approach the Munster camp where they would find the tent of Brian Baru. Brian was an elderly man, possibly unable to fight as he would have done as a younger man and possibly mourning the slaughter of his fine son on the battlefield. While Brian was praying in his tent, brother and his Viking contingent attacked Brian and killed him. Brian's bodyguards leapt into action and captured the assailants, putting them all to a grisly death, brother included. It was too late for Brian, 
who died at this battle despite his army being the victors. One account says that Brian was killed by an axe to his head, but that he was able to cut off his attacker's left leg and right foot. Brother is reported to have had his stomach slashed open before he was made to walk around a tree until his insides had fallen out. Aftermath Some of the tales of the Battle of Clontarf and Brian Baru looked to glorify Brian as a legendary Irish hero, but the reality of the Battle of Clontarf is that it signalled the end of an era in which Brian Baru and his incredible life were consigned to history, and in order to demonstrate this we need to look at the survivors of this battle. The leader of the Dublin Vikings, Sictric Silkbeard, according to some sources, kept a safe distance from the battle. He would remain the king of the Dublin Vikings, but by now they were a shadow of the power they once were. They were now in the shadow of the King of Meath, Moyle Shechnal MacDomnall. The Kingdom of Meath was the Southern Enail Kingdom, referred to as Media during this period of time. It is suggested that Moyle Shechnal MacDomnall led a group of his own men from the Media at the rear of the entire army of Brian Baru at the Battle of Clontarf. Due to the death of so many of Brian Baru's family at the Battle of Clontarf, his descendants, referred to as the O'Brien dynasty, had their power compromised, and so they were ripe for the challenge. The Dalgushans lost control of the Kingdom of Munster, and it would be a number of years before the O'Briens would be able to claim the throne again. We learned earlier in the episode that Moyle Shechnall MacDonnell felt obliged to surrender the role of High King of Ireland to Brian Baru. Now that Brian Baru was dead, Moyle Shechnall would reclaim the role for the Enals, who traditionally held this title in any case. The O'Briens of the Dalgushians did also become High Kings of Ireland once again, and under another of Brian Baru's sons, this time Donchat MacBrien. Donchat, son of Brian by Gumfa of Leinster, was therefore the half-brother of Sigric Silkbeard, King of the Dublin Vikings. Donchat appears to have had to have waited until the 1020s before he became the King of Munster and before he became the High King of Ireland, sometime after Moyle Shechnall's eventual passing in 1022. After this time, and despite there being a High King of Ireland, most of the local kingdoms had become as independent as they had always been yet again. Sigtrig Silkbeard lived until 1040 and the age of 72 years old. After the Battle of Clontarf, he would eventually go on a pilgrimage to Rome and found the Christchurch Cathedral of Dublin, which is still there to this day. He would abdicate his position after 46 years as the King of Dublin. (music) 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode on the Battle of Clontarf. It's an absolute pleasure to dig a little bit deeper into Irish history. Um, and it made me realise, when I was writing that episode, it made me realise how um, how incredibly diverse the cultures of the British Isles actually are. And even though I'm a resident of the British Isles and, a, and an Englishman um, myself, it made me realise how little I know about Ireland. Um, and um, it, it made me feel quite sad, actually, because we spend a lot of time on these islands, especially here, focusing on the history of England and even Scotland and Wales and, and not too much on the history of Ireland. And um, also it made me realise how incredibly difficult it is uh, for me as an Englishman, as an English speaker, to actually uh, pronounce all of these old Gaelic terms, all these Gaelic names as well. Um, it really is quite alien to English speakers who are not familiar with it. And um, so I'd like to just go on the record and apologise for all of the bad Gaelic pronunciations uh, throughout the episode. And um, I'd always welcome anyone who, who's, who could point me in the right direction. Um, I'm trying to um, sort of refer to as many uh, online sources as possible in order to sort of get at least some way close to the, the proper pronunciations, which I know will be... Uh, more second nature to Gaelic speakers. So uh, thank you for bearing with me. Um, thank you also for uh, cutting me a bit of slack as well. And uh, I hope I didn't make too much of a, of a bad mess of some of the pronunciations. It didn't ruin the episode for you. But um, fundamentally, thank you so much for um, having such a wonderful, rich and interesting history to the uh, island of Ireland. And um, it was an absolute pleasure. And I can't wait until we speak of the island again. So, a great episode. The Ancient World Cup. This week in the Ancient World Cup, we saw the ancient Egyptians uh, against the Seleucids in match number six of round two. Uh, so uh, there's going to be 16 matches all in all. This is match number six, so we're we're almost halfway through, not quite, but almost halfway through, and almost we've completed the first half of the uh, of the draw for the third round. Um, so this week's match between the ancient Egyptians and the Seleucids, as usual, we voted on the History of the World podcast Facebook page, the History of the World podcast fan group. Uh, the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages Facebook page. Uh, we were voting on the Tapper Talk discussion forum for the podcast and uh, on the Twitter feed. And uh, if you want to discover more about any of those forums, then just go to the History of the World podcast.com website and uh, go to the Interact page to find all those links. Um, so uh, without further ado, let's announce the winner of match number six. And uh, with an absolute uh, whopping 84% of the votes, it was the ancient Egyptians uh, in what is, is probably the most one-sided contest we've had so far in the entire event, um, which means we lose uh, the Seleucids who only managed to achieve 16% of all of the votes. 
So that means that the ancient Egyptians advance. They will face the Babylonians in round three. And uh, let's have a look at next week's match now in this uh, ancient World Cup. If you want to find out more about the ancient World Cup, um, the entire schedule of matches uh, can be found also at the History of the World Podcast.com website just click on the ancient world cup link and uh, you'll find all of the qualifying groups that we that we did uh, initially before this knockout phase and uh, you'll find all the brackets for the rest of the competition there as well uh, so you will see that match number seven in the competition in uh, round two will be between the sumerians and the Sasanians. So the Sumerians, of course, were the one of the very, very first historic cultures of the entire world uh, from around about 5,000 years ago. Uh, they settled the lands of the, um, of the Arabian Gulf and they were the first culture of Mesopotamia uh, that for which we've got any sort of recorded or written history of. And... Um, Going up against uh, the Sumerians, the um, the Sasanians, who were the uh, the Persian culture. So we're we're at the same sort of area of the world, but they're the Persian culture who effectively reclaimed Persia for Persians um, after a long period uh, after the fall of the Achaemenids of domination by the Seleucids, um, whose heritage was from ancient Greece. And uh, the Parthians, whose um, whose sort of heritage was really the uh, the step cultures of uh, of the area of sort of Bactria and Transoxania, or, or that area of the world. So um, the Sasanians were the ones who reclaimed Persia before um, they fell ultimately to the uh, to the Umayyads um, or the Rashidun Caliphates of of the uh, Islamic Caliphate. So. Um, Sumerians versus the Sasanians uh, is match number seven and more details of that match and how to vote can be found on all the previously discussed uh, forums uh, mainly the Facebook pages but also Twitter and uh, the Tapatalk discussion forum Listener messages and reviews Now if you want to support the History of the World podcast you can just simply once again go to the history of the world podcast.com website click on the patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution when you do so you automatically become a member of the history of the world podcast illuminati and you also qualify for some of the gifts and rewards that the podcast offers to its patrons um, there are a few people who are waiting for gifts to be dispatched in the post. If you are one of those people, uh, don't uh, don't think that you've been forgotten about. We don't forget about you. Uh, we tend to send our gifts out in bulk, so um, in the next batch of deliveries, I'm I'm sure you'll be included. Um, however, also uh, other opportunities exist, such as you get uh, questions answered during podcast episodes, and you can even commission your own 
uh, subject of a podcast episode. So we've had some already, but coming up in the future, we've got uh, a special episode that focuses on the weaponry of medieval cultures. That's coming up in the next, uh, well, it'll probably come up in the next couple of months now, I think. And uh, also, uh, we're making an episode on the Khoisan um, cultures of Africa. Uh, so that should be very interesting and something a little bit different. So uh, there are episodes to look forward to in the future. Um, we welcome uh, new members into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Uh, and they are Dawn Petit, Neil MacDonald and Robert Johnson. So you're all new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Welcome into uh, our family. And thank you very, very much for uh, your uh, your valued contributions. Uh, I will make sure that the the money is used wisely, uh, and um, you know the the book collection of the podcast is uh, very healthy and 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 quite good. So thank you so much to everyone that's helped me to accomplish that feat. Um, we will move on to some History of the World podcast messages and reviews as well. Um, just to let you know, so next month there might be um, a few unscripted episodes published while I take stock of everything and, and a couple of um, events that are taking place during June are sort of covered. So uh, I will be um, maybe a little bit sketchy with the episodes for sort of pretty much throughout June. Uh, I'm not sure what the schedule will be, but I'm hoping that we don't have an entire month of unscripted episodes. I'm going to be looking to avoid that. Uh, but just to let you know, um, let's read out some of the messages that have come through. Uh, Brooke Penrose has written into the podcast saying, Hi, Chris, love the podcast. It's informative, entertaining and fascinating. I've just listened to your volume two podcast on the Olmec culture and wanted to share my thoughts uh, on the idea you brought up about the ball game. You mentioned the possibility of the losing team being sacrificed due to pictorial evidence. Also the possibility that the colossal stoneheads may depict ball players. My thoughts on this are that the citizens may be reticent to sign up to play if they have a good chance of being killed at the end. I would say that that's um, quite a, a fair assumption, Brooke. Um <clears throat> As the winners of any match are likely to go on to be unbeaten uh, time after time as they improve or being offered some rich reward on the success of their season or game, uh, in either case, the quality of one or both of the teams would almost be uh, always relatively low from a lack of experience, leading to a less enjoyable match for spectators, including presumably the gods. I wonder if it is possible that the pictures of the teams being sacrificed owes more to team spirit. It strikes me that we rarely allow our ancient ancestors a sense of humour. These images could just as likely be advertising for the sports team and what they will metaphorically do to their rivals. It equates to the sort of language you use in sport today. We're going to kill them or destroy them, etc. If perhaps the teams were made up of slaves or captured enemies hoping to secure their freedom, I wonder if the dominant culture would be likely to honour the players by carving the big stone heads. Uh, though that sort of cultural honour is shown to slave gladiators in Rome, other aspects of these cultures 
seems so different, I think the comparison is unlikely. Perhaps the Olmec Society is much more like ours than we think, and all of this enjoyable spectacle. It's quite possible for them to use human sacrifice as metaphor on one hand while engaging in it in reality in the other. Humans are pretty good at understanding these contradictions and living within them. Uh, well, thank you, Brooke. What a fascinating uh, message. And, and uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts and opinions about the Olmec ball games. Of course, the ball game culture was really uh, um, something that spread throughout uh, Mesoamerica. And so we see these ball game courts uh, uh, all over the place, really. So it must have had some um, some very uh, deep cultural significance to these societies. It, it probably wasn't just a sports event and probably did have something to do with honouring the gods um, and and maybe even being sacrificed um, could have been quite an honourable way to end your life. We know that uh, the attitudes uh, towards sacrifice um, in the Americas, in particular in the in the pre-Columbian Americas was quite, um, quite something, you know, it's quite, it's really quite more than, than we see in many other parts of the world. And, um, so the significance, yeah, certainly should be, uh, analyzed further and, and I'm sure it will be in, in, in years to come. Charles has written in to say, uh, Hi Chris, I recently discovered your podcast and I'm enjoying both the old episodes and some of the newer ones. It was especially good to hear the one on the Kievan Roos. Could I recommend that you make your episode title shorter by leaving out the volume and episode number? Um, I know it's a really minor thing to give feedback on, but I do agree with the comment in the blog post that makes... Uh, he, he sent me a, a blog post uh, uh, link, by the way. Um, that it makes the titles uglier and adds to clutter. It's like when I read a journal. If I look in the corner, I can see that it's volume four, issue 67, but it's not to the foreground. I think practically all podcast apps support episode numbering, um, especially as you might want to add another number, like a year to the episode title. The only information in the title should be that, uh, should be, uh, that it's most relevant. All the best Charles, well, thank you, Charles. You've sent um, a couple of very interesting links there that discuss uh, episode numbering. I suppose what makes um, my podcast different from some of the others that we might reference, um, if I look at other podcasts that don't really have a strict, um, type, you know, don't ever have a strict sort of a ethos about how the information is presented. So. Something like, uh, I don't know, Melvin Bragg's In Our Time, uh, which is a podcast series that we mentioned last week, funnily enough. But, um, you know, there's there's no sort of structure to the subject matter that he discusses. And sort of anything goes, really. And, and next week could, could just as well be uh, something from prehistory as it could be about, you know, something to do with the Cold War. Um, so there's no... but. In, with with the history of the world podcast, the structuring of the episodes is is absolutely key and fundamental to the entire podcast series. So we're we're expecting um, p particular areas of uh, history to be discussed within Volume Four. So to identify episodes that are within Volume Four is quite important. But 
I wonder what everyone else thinks. It'd be interesting to see what everyone else thinks. Obviously, uh, I suppose the other aspect to it is, is uh, can you find the History of the World podcast? Um, you know, I suppose you want to look at episodes about the Anglo-Saxons, for example, and you do a search in your podcast uh, provider um, for the Anglo-Saxons. Will the History of the World podcast uh, come up uh, as quickly if... There is a volume and episode number at the start. I don't know, but uh, thank you, Charles. Anyway, so uh, going to give me some food for thought there. But I'll be interested to hear what the other listeners think. Uh, Ella Jando Saul has written in saying, Hi, I absolutely love this podcast and delighted to have found it. It's almost exactly what I've been looking for for a long time. I only have two issues so far, which is something, considering uh, how long I've been searching for something like this and feeling dissatisfied. That's a shame. Um, first of all, I have a comment about Volume 1, Episode 6, Prehistoric Speech and Language. It was a very interesting episode, and I feel it lacked clarity on the difference between language and communication. You talked a lot about Washoe and the videos of her use of sign language, but I have found many people's analyses of these videos and most, if not all other accounts of ape sign language showing that these apes have learned to communicate but have not actually learned to use language. I thought it would have been a bit clearer if that distinction had been brought up. The question, of course, is not really when humans started communicating with their vocal cords or hands, but when their communication became something different, uh, i.e. language. My other issue is more general. I have not got very far, so it might be that you're just organising things in such a way uh, that this following comment is wrong, but it seems to me that you are focusing on what we should, uh, or what we would tend to think of as Western history. For example, when you describe, uh, though you describe in Volume 1, Episode 17, The Origin of Villages, an early settlement in Japan, you focus mostly on the first settlements in the Middle East. Likewise... Um, your episode on the origin of metallurgy focuses on its origin in the Middle East. It is possible that because these things happened earlier in the Middle East and other parts of the world, you will have episodes focusing on those other places later. But looking ahead, I did not seem to see any. A quick search of Wikipedia shows, for, for instance, that uh, in Korea, the Julman pottery period, uh, 8,000 to 3,500 BCE, is sometimes labelled the Korean Neolithic, but since intensive agriculture and evidence of European-style Neolithic lifestyle is sparse at best, such terminology is misleading. I feel like these uh, kinds of distinctions would be important to underline in a podcast that claims to be giving the history of the world. I would really want to know, for example, different places permanent settlements seem to have cropped up in independently like what you did for agriculture and how these cultures differed anyway let me know if you do go into more detail in later episodes or if you know any podcasts that cover geographical areas you are less knowledgeable about again i love your podcast i'm still in volume one and i'm excited to hear what new things i will learn as i continue listening ella well thank you for such a, a well-considered um uh email that you wrote um it's it's wonderful to receive such emails and and understand the thoughts and opinions of the people who are listening to the podcast um going back to what you said about um the 
prehistoric speech and language episode. Um, of course, I, I suppose it depends what you're looking to learn from such episodes, um, because I understand that when people see the, the title of a uh, podcast episode such as that, they may have an expectation about what uh, they expect to hear or what they expect to uh, learn more about. And sometimes it's just that we don't really know enough to be able to give you a categorical um, answer to the questions you might have in the back of your mind. So, for example, when we're talking about the emergence of uh, human ability to speak a language, um, you sort of have to dig into what language fundamentally is and then what communication fundamentally is. Um, you know, is it correct to uh, suppose that sign language is a language of some type or, or would you classify language as something that is only vocally spoken um that's not necessarily a question for me to answer that that could be a question for anyone to have an opinion of um however having said that um you know i think there's a couple of couple of aspects that are really important uh, to discuss during such an episode and that is when was when was uh, the human able to physically um articulate language through uh, a, a range of vocal sounds uh, and also you know at the same time what was the um, what you know what was the the catalyst that started um, language being an array of communication and the only thing you, you can excavate bones that that maybe give you a clue about the physical aspect of humans but as for the cognitive ability which is the second point um, it, you can't. There's no archaeological evidence. You'll you'll never be able to find that out through archaeology. You can only work that out through sort of common sense and research of similar um, things, such as uh, chimpanzee cognitive ability. And uh, I think I hopefully did make that point during the episode. So it's like maybe um, sometimes we look for answers that are just not there. You know. Um, Anyway, um, the other thing about the origin of villages that you brought up, Ella, um, regarding um, how it's sort of a westernised history. I suppose it's more, for me, it's a bit more Eurocentric or, or perhaps Eurasian-centric, if you like, that we, we often uh, use uh, what was going on in uh, the Near East as the basis of everything uh, that we discuss that that's gone on elsewhere in the world, and that's only really because we've got so much information about uh, how things emerged in the Near East compared to other cultures. And um, I would say one of the one of the more neglected areas of the world when discussing prehistory um, is not so much the Far East, but the Americas and Sub-Saharan Africa as well. Like um, after sort of the Neolithic, you know, Neolithic Revolution onwards. Um, the Americas and um, and um, Sub-Saharan Africa we seem to not be discussing as much as even the Far East. So I know you've singled out Korea, but I would say that's one place of many that we could sort of say, well, you know, maybe we're, we're not talking about those places enough, but it's really the fundamental basis for all of our Neolithic knowledge and, and the nature of the Neolithic re revolution is explained very well by the Near East, which is why that's always going to be the primary focus. Um, everything else that we learn about um, the rest of the world and how they transitioned into, you know, pastoralism and 
um, sedentary lifestyles, let's say, is, is going to be based on what we know about the Near East Neolithic uh, as a consequence. So uh, that is why I would say that the Near East is uh, prominent is because that's, you know, that's fundamentally where the basis of world knowledge um, exists. Uh, but anyway, thank you, Ella. Fascinating, um, fascinating email. And thank you very much for taking the time to write it. Moving on very quickly, uh, just a couple of reviews. Um, Chaz Draper from the USA has put, love the podcast. I've been listening for about three weeks now, catching up and I'm on the unscripted series in between three and four already. Only really was looking for prehistory and got hooked on your podcast right away. Just wanted to say, keep up the amazing work and can't wait to catch up to the current episodes. I, I love those ones where people were have discovered the podcast because they're looking for a particular aspects of history and then have sort of cascaded their interest into other volumes. I, I, I enjoy getting that kind of feedback. Dinosaur Boy from the USA is, but thank you. Uh, thank you for this. I'm on volume two, The Phoenicians. At this point, you are like an old friend with whom I don't have to make small talk. Um, well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for those lovely reviews. And um, that's it for another week of the History of the World podcast. Um, really enjoyed this one on Irish history and especially uh, how much medieval culture and, and medieval storytelling exists in Ireland. It's probably thanks to the fact that it's uh, Northwest Europe and and linked also to all that saga writing that the, we get these sort of romanticised medieval battles um, from places like Ireland. Um, next week, um, it's going to be more of the same, really, I would suggest, uh, but we're also going to link up to some episodes of the past. So we're going to be tracking Viking history again, but this time we're going to be talking about how the Normans came about. And uh, so next week's episode, the, the focus is the Normans and Normandy, um, ahead of uh, another episode about an incredibly important battle, uh, the Battle of Hastings. So that's what's uh, to look forward to over the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, but thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. We'll look forward to doing it all over again next week. And until then, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.